Welcome to this podcast on conflicts of interest in dispute resolution and how to deal with them. Uh, my name is Martin Burns and I'm joined today by Philip Mead. Philip's going to introduce himself in a moment or two, but uh, he and I have known us for quite some years now. And uh, we both were involved in preparing RSS guidance notes on conflicts of interest. And um, that's part of the credentials for us both being here. So, Philip, do you want to say hello? Yes, good afternoon, Martin. Hello. Um, I'm Philip Mead. I'm Rural Charter Surveyor. Uh, I dwell in the, uh, the sort of borders of the West Midlands near Shrewsbury, but cover the whole of the country with, um, with a lot of my work. I'm a rural arbitrator, I sit on a, a, a number of um, committees where Martin and I will meet on a fairly regular basis throughout the year. And I also chair the um, dispute resolution, working one of the working parties on, on this sort of thing, which has a general conduct and general oversight of, uh, of these sort of guidance notes and practice statements that, uh, that are put out by RICS when they, as and when they relate to dispute resolution. And say so our rural arbitrator is, uh, is, is a lot of the work that I do, rural arbitrations. And I think, Philip, in that introduction there, you've actually set out quite a few credentials for being able to talk about this subject. Just to repeat, my name's Martin Burns. I'm head of ADR Research and Development at RICS. Uh, I've worked for RICS for over 32 years. I'm not a surveyor. I'm a lawyer by qualification and training. But uh, a lot of the work I get involved in is actually helping and advising on individual cases where arbitrators or adjudicators or mediators appointed and questions around conflicts of interest. And it's always been a subject that's been of great interest to me. So I've been delighted to be invited to join you, Philip, to have a conversation about this particular subject. And particularly how conflicts of interest relate to people like you who act as arbitrators, mediators, adjudicators in the areas of dispute resolution and how you have to deal with them. And I just wonder if we hmm. might just start this conversation with a, a question, you know, what is a conflict of interest? What do we mean by a conflict of interest? It's a very broad range, really. And it's, well, it's, it's, it's where you're, I suppose, trying to put it in layman's terms in many ways, it's, it's where you feel uncomfortable with advising a party because you feel that you're conflicted or that you're unable to advise the party completely impartially uh, because you have an interest or you know the other party or there is a there is something stopping you from being completely transparent completely straightforward with your advice i mean it's let's say that's rather sort of lengthy explanation and and it has it has evolved conflicts um, certainly have evolved in the last few years along with with the profession then that they're not as clear cut as perhaps they used to be i mean an obvious one is that as an arbitrator you wouldn't sit in and listen on an arbitration where your wife is one of the parties for example i mean that's a that's a straightforward easy <laughs> conflict of interest to understand but the way that the, the the industry, our profession, has evolved, and this is why we had to draw up this set of uh, the, this, this guidance note that Martin and I were both involved in, and I authored a couple of years ago now, is that the professions moved on, and you have large firms as well as small firms, but these large firms will perhaps take over a smaller firm and have sub offices. You may have the main office might be in London, and the sub office might be up in some Scottish uh, a Scottish town, for example, or a, or a town in the northwest, and because the, the, the company has recently taken over a smaller company. The, the partners, the, the, the people employed may not even know each other, but there could potentially therefore be a conflict if one party suddenly gets instructed to act as a, a dispute resolver 
one one partner in the big firm gets act, uh, acts as a dispute resolver, and uh, does, without without knowing it and unintentionally, one of his partners, one of his employees, is involved with one of the parties. So it can be very tricky and it can be very broad ranging. So you have to be very careful. I hear what you say, Philip, and when you say very tricky, what I'm also hearing is that it's not that easy to define in the sense that when I've talked to RSS members and other professionals about conflicts of interest, they really want a very definitive answer about what is a conflict and what isn't. Yes. And it's not always that black and white, is it? It's always very difficult in some cases. There is black and there is white. There are situations which are quite clearly a conflict. Just as you described, you can't be an arbitrator if your wife's a party. And there are situations where it's quite clearly you don't have any knowledge or involvement with any of these parties and there's no conflict, but there's this huge grey area. But of course, why, why it's so important in the area of dispute resolution is that people who act as arbitrators, like yourself, need to be seen to be independent and impartial and neutral, to have no axe yes. to grind. That is fundamental in the sense of giving confidence in the whole system of dispute resolution. And of course, the veracity of the outcome, because if you are demonstrably uh, conflicted by having uh, an interest in the outcome of the dispute, then that decision that you ultimately make it can be um, set aside. So this whole idea of conflicts of interest is is easy in one sense. It's just as you say, it's the, there are situations where quite clearly you can't be seen to be impartial because you have somebody involved in the dispute with whom you'd have an interest in making sure that they're, they're seen to be done right. It kind of brings me on to the, a, a very challenging question, I suppose, in terms of conflicts of interest. Is who actually decides if a conflict of interest exists? You know, if you're involved in an arbitration, you're an arbitrator, there's parties, there's RSES involved, maybe in appointing you. Where's the decision made? How, how is that decision made in terms of whether there is a conflict? It sort of happens at a number of stages, really. I mean, the initial stage really is the responsibility is down to the dispute resolver because you'll get an invitation to act if you're appointed by the RICS. Mm. And I appreciate there are other appointing bodies out there. But for an example, with, with the RICS, they, they, they will write to me as arbitrator and say, we are considering appointing you as arbitrator on a case between A and B. Uh, and it is my responsibility then to check that I'm not involved with A or B. Uh, that I don't have a conflict of interest with A or B. And I'll then write back to the RSCS and say, I've done my due diligence. I've checked with my partners. I've checked with my staff. I've checked with our databases and we don't have a conflict of interest. So the initial decision as to who decides if a conflict exists lies uh, or responsibility rests with the dispute resolver. Ultimately, I suppose if a conflict has existed or there is a, a question over jurisdiction because of conflict of interest, then the arbitrator can be challenged at a fairly early stage by the parties who say, hang on a minute, isn't the isn't the other party your brother-in-law or something like that? In which case, you know, if you had somehow forgotten that one of the parties was your brother-in-law, you might have to hold your hands up and, um, and resign. Further than that, I mean, if a conflict of interest is sort of raised at an even later stage, then I suppose it would be able to be the courts that would decide. You know, you might have a, an award challenged on serious irregularity or something like that. Hopefully, it never gets to that stage because as a dispute resolver, you should do due diligence and make sure that there is no conflict of interest. But it, the, the answer is sort of two or three-sided, really. Initially, it's you as a as dispute resolver. Then it's down to the parties to see whether or not they want to challenge your jurisdiction. And then, again, the arbitrator would decide on his own his own jurisdiction in terms of a conflict challenge. But ultimately, it may come down to a court to decide. 
Yeah, I, I think all of that makes a great deal of sense to me. And, and putting that into practical terms, if we at RSCS were to invite you to be an arbitrator in a given case, what we would do is give you details of that case. We'd tell you who the parties are, what the dispute's about, where it is, give you enough information that you can make a judgment call as to whether you could take that arbitration on. And one of the the main factors you have to consider is, do you have a conflict? And what you need to do then is to look at the parties and say, well, who are these parties? You know, Do I have any sort of involvement in these parties now or historically or maybe in the future, which would give cause for anyone looking at this to be concerned that I might be biased towards or against one or the other? So yeah, the board's very much in your court at that point, isn't it? Yes. Also, from a practical viewpoint, sometimes what we know is that you might say, well, actually, there is an involvement. I don't think it's a conflict because it's it's kind of remote or it's historic. You know, it's, it's years old. I did some work for one of these parties 12 years ago. It was a one-off thing, but um, I haven't done anything for them since. And the way the RSS guidance works around that is that that's something that you really need to tell RSS about. And you need to be open and transparent about it. I think this is hugely important, a message that hopefully this podcast will get across. It's about being open and transparent about this and not keeping it to yourself. What would RSS do in those circumstances? Well, we might agree with you that this is so historic and remote that it couldn't conceivably give rise to any reasonable doubt as to your impartiality. And I use that word reasonable there because that's how the courts would look at it. What we often do in, in practical terms as well is we might go to both parties and say, look, we're considering appointing Philip Mead as an arbitrator. He's disclosed this historic involvement. What do you think? And in those circumstances, if we get positive replies back from both parties, then you have what really is a very safe appointment. Yeah, absolutely. Transparency is key. I mean, that is, that's the important thing is transparency. And that's, that, that's where the, the arbitrator's role, the dispute resolver, resolver's role comes in to start with is making that sort of decision when the appointment arrives or the invitation arrives and deciding whether or not there are any conflicts or a sort of a, a and I think better to err on the side of um, caution really in that sense you know if you think there is a, an issue then as you say notify the the RICS of a potential issue and my experience is that the RICS do then well either say well don't worry about it it's nothing nothing substantial or maybe actually yes we better we better write to the parties. I think probably nine times out of ten, in my experience, the RSS, DRS do write to the parties and say this has been raised by a potential candidate for the dispute resolver role. What do you think? And very often the parties say, no, that's fine. So I think that's that's certainly a key part of the process in making sure that the conflict doesn't go any further. Yeah, openness and transparent. And of course, no surprises, because what you don't want to be in a position is that the parties find out something later in the day Maybe when you're halfway through the arbitration and you feel, oh, this is something perhaps I ought to have revealed much earlier. It kind of brings me on, because I I talked a moment or two ago about, you know, reasonable perception. And it kind of brings us to this situation. Well, the courts are the ultimate decision makers on whether something is a a conflict of interest, I suppose. Uh, And what is your feeling about how the courts have approach this you know what what's what kind of test do you think they apply in the sense of if they look at an allegation that an arbitrator or a mediator or adjudicate has a conflict of interest how do the courts approach it there's a number of sort of leading cases on it i, I think really the, the main one is um mcgill and porter which sort of defined 
the test, if you like, saying that, well, what would a fair-minded and informed observer think? Would they consider that there was a real possibility of bias? That's, that's the sort of the key test. And there have been other cases, very famously, there's the Pinochet case that most people probably heard of. It was in the news, et cetera. It was, it was a, there was conflicts in that case. There was a, a R versus Goff, which sort of uh, established a, a, a modern approach, but sort of backed up McGill and Porter and really looked at whether there was a, a real danger, not just a, a likelihood of, of bias. Bias seems to be the key uh, phrase in, in all the cases. We'll perhaps come to a difference between sort of bias or or impartiality i suppose is the other way to look at it and there's a difference um, between independence impartiality which we can we can perhaps touch on at the moment but you you've got to sort of take the old test when i first started out it wasn't necessarily to do with conflicts of interest but you they used to say what what would the man on the clapham omnibus think and i think that's been uh, it, it's sort of modernized to the to the man on the street these days but um it it, it is what is a fair-minded and in, uh, informed informed observer not someone who doesn't have any uh, any idea about the situation at all what would they think would they see that there's a real possibility of bias? And it's got to be an objective test. You've got to look at it objectively because there are lots of different scenarios and lots of different cases that arise. So that's that's really the, the key. And, and, and it's not only just actual bias. You've got to look at what they call perceived bias. What is the perception of the parties? What, if, you're, if you're going to act uh, and one of the parties is distantly related or is the employee of a son of uh, of your son or something like that or there's some some what, what is the what is the perceived situation so that that's quite important as well yeah you're quite right there's been a, a history of case law that's led up to the current position which you you've cited mcgill and porter pinochet loco bail and going back even further to to uh, the crown and goff r and goff i think all of those talk about the guy in the Clapham omnibus, as you say, the reasonable observer, Gillan Porter referred to the fair-minded and informed observer. And all this is pointing to this objectivity, isn't it? An objective test. And, and that's so difficult, I think, for a person who's actually involved in a dispute. If you're a party to a dispute, perhaps it's, it's difficult in those circumstances for them to be objective because they're naturally going to be subjective when they're looking at a a set of circumstances. But what the the legal tests are looking at, of course, is that fair-minded and informed observer. And what they mean by that is somebody who's actually not involved in this, who's looking at this from an objective position, who's taking a reasonable conclusion as to whether the circumstances they see before them would give rise to the perception in their mind that there could be the possibility. And that's another thing the law says, not probability, but possibility of bias. And that then looks also at whether or not the arbitrator or the adjudicator is going to, or is able to act impartially. And this lovely distinction that you were drawing just a moment or two ago, that there's this notion of impartiality or concept of impartiality and this concept of independence. And of course, they are inevitably going to be linked to be the same thing, but they're not, are they? No, uh- it sort of sums up the the situation in many ways because the problems we've had in recent years, as I talk about, you know, with 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 big firms taking over smaller firms and that sort of thing, and that is a situation where I think you might find that a a dispute resolver would be found not to be possibly independent because independent almost predictates that the, the the dispute resolver needs to be a sole practitioner sitting on his own in isolation in an office with no contacts with anybody at all. You, know, you can't be 
truly, truly independent. Uh, I mean, you can, but there, there are many, many situations where you won't be independent, but you can still be impartial. Uh, and in fact, if you look, and this is something we, we had to consider quite carefully when we wrote the, uh, the guidance. If you look at the, the I think it's, the, it's in the Scottish guidance, uh, the Scottish uh, law, is that for the purpose of, of the Scottish rules, an arbitrator, I'm just quoting here, an arbitrator is not independent in relation to an arbitration if A, the arbitrator's relationship with any party, B, the arbitrator's financial or other commercial interest, or C, anything else gives rise to justifiable doubts as to the arbitrator's impartiality. So it almost defines impartiality with independence and vice versa. What that actually does, and I think it's very relevant to independence and impartiality in what we do, is it actually says that impartiality is king. Impartiality is the important thing. You may not Mm. be independent. You may not be entirely 100% independent because one of the parties is represented by somebody in a far-flung office that you've never met before, but is, is, is vaguely related to your business. That may mean that you're not independent, but can you be impartial? And that that sort of quote from the Scottish rules really sums it up quite nicely is that, well, you're not independent if your impartiality is called into question. So if you're impartial, then you're automatically independent. It's it's a it's a funny way of sort of paraphrasing it, but that but that essentially is the is the acid test. And I, as I say, come back to it. Impartiality, I think, is the is the key. And in, independence sort of then follows. Yes, you know, it, it, it's for some, I think it's a difficult concept to grasp. Um, I'm going to be a little controversial and suggest that arbitrators uh, are inevitably not going to be independent because independence and impartiality, as you say, impartiality is actually a state of mind, in my view. You know, it's it's what the arbitrator is thinking in the sense of, I will act impartially, I am going to be fair and just in this particular case. Independence is very difficult to imagine in arbitration because one of the reasons arbitrators are appointed is because they're usually technical experts in the subject of the dispute. And if you're a technical expert in the subject of a dispute, then it means that you will have to have involvements, you know, a sense of being engaged in a market or an industry or a technical subject area where lots of other people are going to be engaged. And as a result, you're going to be talking and involved with people to the extent where you're never going to be more than one place removed or two places removed from other parties. And so for that sense, I think, and and this is really something that, as you say, Philip, in in the guidance which you authored, is made quite clear that independence is not necessary in arbitration in in the sense of, you can't have somebody completely independent because otherwise they're not going to understand what the subject is about. They won't be able to appreciate the evidence and they won't come up with a really good decision that you require. But impartiality, as you say, is key. It's king. It's key. It is what is absolutely necessary. I, th- I think that's absolutely right, Martin. I think you've summed it up in terms of a state, a state of mind. You know, when you say it's a state of mind, and certainly when I'm considering questions of conflict of interest. Uh, in the cases where possibly a possible conflict has is is arisen before I've accepted an appointment, I think you have to step back and say, well, okay, I'm not entirely independent, but can I, in my own mind, happily say that I can make a decision on this matter without worrying about the, the consequences of having to then 
deal with or face or speak to one of the parties that I might know because of some sort of business relationship that might have um, might go back a few years or whatever it is so it is that state of mind that that is important and if as an arbitrator i can sit back and say yes i can completely ignore the slight lack of independence that i might have and i can make a decision impartially without fearing uh, of having to having to answer one of the parties you go back to to making a decision uh, when your wife is one of the parties well you obviously sit back and think well can i really explain to her over the breakfast table the next morning why i didn't find in her favor well clearly that's <laughs> going to cause all sorts of issues of impartiality you wouldn't be able to do it yeah, yeah but if it's a client that you haven't met for haven't acted for for 10 years uh, and haven't spoken to for 10 years and you make a decision uh, you're, you're sitting there thinking well what happens if i don't find in his favor is it going to matter well no it's not he's not contacted me for 10 years he's not a regular customer he's probably never going to contact me again now that's not to say you wouldn't necessarily tell drs that you had a, a, a knowledge of this person 10 years ago but from from an impartial point of view i would be quite comfortable in that situation yeah that, and that goes to something we, we kind of touched on a, a moment or two ago when i talked about how conflicts can be black and white but there's this huge area of gray and if, if i could use maybe your analogy about your wife being one of the parties that is a situation of, of, you know, if you want to call it black, quite clearly a conflict of interest. But if you want to look at it a little bit further, what if she was the wife of a friend? Well, that's still, I think, kind of not black, but it is very dark, isn't it? It's very dark grey. Yes. And it suggests to me that there's possibility that that's still a conflict. If she was the wife of somebody who you kind of knew but wasn't a friend, well, that's moving it slightly away, isn't it, towards more into the grey area. Still something I think you need to disclose. If she was the wife of somebody you didn't know at all, then, of course, that's white. But what, what you see in conflicts of interest is often it's about degrees. Sometimes it's very clear that it's a conflict. Sometimes it's clear it's not. But in other situations, and RSS has to deal with these on a daily basis when we're looking to appoint arbitrators and other dispute resolvers, is how much that degree brings it close to this is something that is uh, a problem, a problem area that means that the arbitrator can't be appointed to one where it's quite clear the arbitrator doesn't have a conflict. And then you have this, if you like, this area in between where maybe the best thing to do is to give the parties the opportunity to comment or if you're stuck for time, go and look for somebody else who's doesn't have any sort of um, involvements which would give any sort of cause for concern. Is there any um, situations you've come across in real life, and we don't have to name names here or anything like that, but situations where, in your view, people have been very adamant that there's a conflict, but there isn't. You know, but it's just that this mindset that people have, because we talked about this sense of independence and impartiality, but sometimes people get it mixed up. And they, I've had many occasions where I've heard uh, parties say this person you've appointed has a conflict when to my mind and in fact to others as well have agreed with me that there isn't but you have to explain it to them I mean one of the ones is a is a personal level possibly is that I mean I've been known for many years in in the sort of rural profession partly because of I followed in my father's footsteps who was very much known as a, a man who acted for farm tenants, agricultural tenants, and his reputation as a tenants champion far exceeded mine. But I tend to get tarred with the same brush, which I'm not ashamed of. I mean, I do a lot of work for, for landlords and tenants. 
But I have had a number of, over the years as arbitrator, concerns voiced about me acting as an arbitrator between a, a landlord and tenant because I'm seen as a tenant's man. Now, I don't see myself as strongly as a tenant's man as perhaps some other people do. But that can also be reflected sometimes in uh, in the rural sector where arbitrators are on the panel, for example, of the Tenant Farmers Association. Now, that again doesn't mean that they are tenant biased. It just means that they are recognized by the Tenant Farmers Association as experts in their field in the same way that there are people on the panel for someone, perhaps the, the county, uh, the CLA. doesn't mean to say they're necessarily biased, but that does sometimes raise an eyebrow, certainly has in my professional career. But again, it comes down to being able to remove yourself as arbitrator from that scenario and say, well, yes, I might be on this panel or that panel, or I might I might be seen to have perceived to have a, a sort of a, a a certain sector of the uh, of the industry as, as mainly my clients, but actually that doesn't stop me stepping back and saying, what is the fair answer in this dispute? What is the right answer in this this dispute? And can I decide this dispute impartially? And certainly over the years, ninety nine times out of a hundred, I've not had a problem with that, uh, and I've. I mean, you can't go into specifics, obviously, but I'm sure if you went through my awards over the years, I've found as many times for landlords as I have for tenants. There's there's no bias, certainly no bias in my awards over the years. I would never think that you would ever act biased or be seen to be biased. But it was interesting that that story you you, you said about your father, because it reminded me of, a, if I may share a little anecdote with you, which is also true, that um, I remember several years ago dealing with a rent review commercial rent review arbitrations a number of them and a particular agent was acting for the tenants this agent wrote to rss we know you're going to appoint an arbitrator and we demand that the arbitrator is not appointed from any of these firms and they listed 50 odd firms you know most of the agents in in london and the southeast of england and the rationale they gave was that all of these firms routinely act for landlords and would therefore be biased in favour of the landlord. I thought to myself, well, what is it that this person wants us to do? Appoint somebody who's biased in favour of the tenants? Because that's what the suggestion oh, exactly. is here. They're saying that because these agents act routinely for landlords, then they're naturally going to be biased towards landlords. And of course, that, that's not true. And you, you're a very good example of, of that in, in real life. And we managed in time to persuade there this particular person that somebody could be appointed from one of the firms that was listed because they would be an act impartially. And there were three or four arbitrations in that particular case. And there was no fuss or anything um, that followed. So I imagine that they were quite satisfied with the performance and indeed the way the, uh, the arbitrator acted in that particular case. But it was... It was just one of those many, many times where we've had conversations with parties involved in dispute resolution who haven't really grasped this concept of conflict and what it really means. I'll just share one more with you very recently. This was in a construction case, and I know you're rural and that construction is probably something you don't <laughs> ever get involved in. But it was a, a case where uh, we appointed a construction adjudicator to resolve a building dispute, a rather large building dispute. And uh, a few days after he was appointed, the respondent party appointed their own professional advisor. And up until that point, they hadn't had anybody advising them. 
And this advisor immediately got onto the adjudicator and said, I know you, you and I had a, a bit of a, a disagreement, a major disagreement about a year ago. And therefore, we, I don't think you'll be impartial in this matter because you will find against me. And therefore, I demand that you stand down. And um, the adjudicator came back to, to RSS and had a, a conversation with me. And I said, well, it seems quite clear to me that the person who's got the conflicts of interest in that case is the the person who's complaining. You shouldn't have taken on the appointment if you knew you were the adjudicator. Um, <laughs> and that seems to have worked itself out. But it, it just goes to show that, you know, it's important that people think carefully about what is a conflict and how that conflict arises as much as whether there is one. I think those are, those are good examples of sort of the difference between independ- independence and impartiality. You know, just, just, just going back to that point again, really, because if you are trying to pass the test of independence, then being on the panel in my situation for the Tenant Farmers Association or being on a panel for a well-known landlord's organization would mean that you are not independent. I don't think you would pass the, the pure independence test, but that doesn't mean that you're not impartial. It doesn't mean you can't act impartially. It doesn't mean you have a conflict of interest. That's absolutely what I, I absolutely agree with you. There has to be something in addition to that, doesn't there? There has to be factors where you you demonstrably have shown that you are biased in favour of a particular side or, or organisation, and just being a member of Tenants Farmers Association, or just being somebody who, in their day to day job, acts predominantly for landlords or landowners, doesn't mean that you have a conflict of interest or that you would be biased, that you were incapable of acting impartially. I suppose the the question I sometimes ask myself is, what is the impact on me personally of making a decision against the person that I feel might be a conflict of interest? And if the impact on me is, is negligible or non-existent, you know, if I'm going to be in the doghouse because my wife's one of the parties and I make a decision against her, then that's a massive impact. But if it's a client I haven't spoken to for 10 years who probably won't, won't contact me again anyway, then there is no impact. And in the same way with the, the Tenant Farms Association, you know, a very good, a very good, respectable organisation who understand that arbitrators have to act impartially. So if I made a decision against one of their members, I'm not going to get hauled over the coals for it. I won't even get a phone call. It's just one of those things. I'm sure it's the same with landlord-based organisations. So it's, 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 not, it's not a rule. It's not a test that the court supply, but it's a test that perhaps I would look at is what is the impact on me if I were to make a decision against that party that, that I'm thinking about maybe a conflict of interest? That's a good piece of advice because we talked about impartiality being a state of mind, and that's exactly what you're you're inferring here, is that or implying here is that it's about can I deal with this impartially in the sense that can I make a decision and not be affected by how it might impact on one party and how that party might then impact on me, whether it's the possibility of getting work through them in the future, or it's a possibility of upsetting them. Or do I feel a favour towards one of the sides? And if, if that mindset says, well, actually, you know, I am of a mind that I can't act in this matter. I'm sorry, but it brings me on to another anecdote. And it's, um, it forgives me, it was a rural practice arbitrator many years ago. And I can't remember his name, but he used to be a president of RSCS uh, a long time ago. He phoned me one day and he said, uh, Martin, RSS has invited me to to act as an arbitrator on a dispute between a a landowner and a tenant farmer. And uh, I have to turn it down. And I I asked why. And he said, look, um, 
you've already appointed me, and I'm sorry about this, but when you appointed me, the application showed that the respondent's professional representative is a Mrs. Jones. And I thought, I, I, I'm not sure where this is going. And he said, well, in a previous life, Mrs. Jones was a Miss Smith. And Miss Smith worked for me as a secretary. <laughs> and Miss Smith, well, I had to sack her because I found her hands in the till one day. And I can honestly say, Martin, that um, I can't act impartially in this matter if Miss Smith is one of the parties. And I think that was a great example of somebody demonstrating mm -hmm. that this impartiality, this state of mind, that up until that point, he had no concerns whatsoever because he'd seen the papers, he'd seen who the parties were, he'd seen who the professional representatives were. But as soon as he discovered that there was something there that could impact on his impartiality, not his independence, but his impartiality, he took the sensible decision that he was going to stand down from that arbitration because he wouldn't be able to act impartially. I think actually, Martin, it goes that anecdote goes a bit further actually because he might actually have been able to act impartially and put put the put that behind him and say, "Well, it was ten years ago, and it, uh, and what's done is done." But actually, the perceived impartiality, the perceived bias, because she might think if he found against her that oh well, he only found against me because of our history, because of what happened. So I think that's a very good example of of him taking the right decision because not because he necessarily thought he couldn't act impartially. He might have been able to, I say, put it behind him and just 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 move on. But the perceived bias, I think, would be an issue there. And I think that's a very good example of perceived bias. Yeah, uh, perceived bias, something that we ought to um, just say a few words about. Just to let you know, in that particular case, he he was quite adamant that he he wouldn't find in her favour. He just he, there was obviously a lot of bad blood there. In terms of these concepts that we're talking about, about perceived bias, about the tests for conflicts of interest, about the difference between impartiality and independence, where can we tell listeners to this podcast, where, where can they go to get some more definitive guidance on, on these subject areas and this hugely important subject? Well, as, as the author, and you're on the working party, as the author of the um, of the guidance note, I would say first is the, the RICS guidance note on conflicts of interest for dispute resolvers. I mean, that is is an obvious go-to, really, because... Um, yeah, Which if, is the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> if you comply with that, then uh, you, you can't go far wrong. <laughs> that in itself is based on a number of sources, including, is it, I think, the IBA... I forget what the IBA stands for. Now I'm sure you can you can help me with that. International Bar Association. That's it. International Bar Association. Thank you very much. That guidance, I think, is is hugely helpful, and I I find that I'm constantly referring to it whenever I receive queries or emails or phone calls from members of RSS and other professionals, because it really does cover so so many points and. Anybody involved in dispute resolution who, who hasn't got a copy of the guidance and who, who hasn't read it, I think they ought to do that now and do it immediately because it, it really does help and inform. The International Bar Association traffic light system is essentially a list of examples, isn't it? Examples of situations that might arise if you're acting as a dispute resolver. And it's called traffic light because it, it has red light, amber and green. And... The idea of that is red lights are situations, examples within that where really you shouldn't take on an appointment and you shouldn't act. 
green is where it's quite clear you don't have a conflict. And the amber section is, well, here are situations where you may be able to act, but perhaps you ought to be open and, and reveal and disclose this kind of relationship or this this situation so that either the appointing body, the body is going to uh, make you the arbitrator, or the parties have some sort of input on whether you, you should take that appointment on or not. Yes. And we built on that a bit with the um, with the with the guidance. Um, and it, it, you know, it's I think is it the the IBA traffic light system has your your non waveable and your waveable red, which I think we 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 had some issues with. We, you know, if something's red, we think it's red, but I mean that's a that's a matter between us and the IBA, I guess. But it's certainly a very useful document, the IBA document, as well as of course our our guidance. And it does have that list of sort of scenarios. Some of them are, are, are patently obvious, like the one we talked about many times where your wife is one of the parties or your brother or something like that. And then you get the slightly more tenuous ones, and then you get the obvious green ones. I had a sit just going back to situations. I had a, a situation when I was first uh, on the panel back in 2008 where one of the fir- one of the parties wrote to me as soon as I was appointed and said, oh, I've just seen an article by you about um, about rent reviews that you wrote seven years ago in the in the Farmers Weekly. I don't think you should be an arbitrator because you were voicing your opinion on rent seven years ago. Well, actually, number one on the green list is that the, ar- the arbitrator or dispute resolver has written an article on the subject. <laughs> it's, it's, so there are some, some, some fairly obvious greens yeah. and there's some fairly unobvious greens as well as obvious reds and unobvious reds. It's a very useful document, but I think needs to be read uh, in conjunction with the, the guidance note that, that we've written. Uh, absolutely right. The guidance note, I think, is the, the main source of guidance and information. The IBA appendix to the, the guidance just list some examples, but I think uh, just a caution to anybody who's listening as well, if they're looking at them, is that they are examples that are there to inform and help. And they're not always that definitive, you know, so you might find yourself in a situation and you're trying to match that situation with something in, in the IBA traffic light system. It's not always going to be the case that you can do that, but it should give you a, a, a good steer as to what action you should take, whether to decline, whether to take an appointment on, or whether to disclose. And my advice is always, if in doubt, disclose. Which actually brings me neatly to, uh, if you like, a, a closing question here, one that we could tie this up in. Is that, Philip, if, if you're going to give one piece of advice to somebody about how conflicts of interest can be avoided, what would it be? I suppose go with your instinct. What seems right you know, try to, you really do. And certainly it applies to all aspects of acting as an arbitrator. And it's something which, you know, I'm almost fascinated by the way the mind works. And it it applies to when I'm writing awards and it applies to when I'm making decisions on awards. And it applies to when I'm deciding whether or not a conflict of interest exists. Is you step back, you almost have to step out of yourself and you have to step into the shoes of this fair-minded observer. What is, and, it, and it's it's an interesting sort of exercise to do, but but it's almost instinctive sometimes. And it's the same as I say when I'm when I write awards. Not wishing to sort of digress too much, but when I write awards, I literally start with a blank piece of paper. Um, I did a, had an arbitration a couple of months ago where I came out of the arbitration, and my assistant who was taking notes for me said, "What do you think?" And obviously, my decision is my decision, not for my assistant to tell me. But I just said, "Well, I don't know yet." Until I sit down with a right piece of paper and start writing this out, it's almost a, a cathartic almost. You actually write out the evidence in front of you. So start writing it out. The answer emerges. And by that same sort of strange process, if you, if you step back and, and look at it objectively, the answer is nearly always there. But you have to be objective. And if you've got a, if you've got a slight doubt, if you're not sure, 
then the very least you should do is raise it with DRS. I mean, obviously, the the, the really sort of minor ones where you, the, 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 one of the parties was in, you, you, you met them at a wine and cheese and wine, shows how old I am, cheese and wine party 25 years ago. You, I, I, you, know, you, you really don't need to trouble the RSCS with that. But but there are degrees all the time. I think it's just just common sense, instinct. You, you, you know the answer. 99 times out of 100, you will know the answer and go with that. But but err on the side of caution. If you're not sure, be transparent because at least the, the DRS are then given a chance to write to the parties and you can then offset any um, or, 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 or head off any issues further down the line. Do you know, I, I think my answer to that same question is probably very, very similar because what I'm hearing you say is that if your gut instinct tells you that something is not quite right, then you need to address that. Yes. You know, if you if you feel well, well, there's this involvement. It is, it is reasonably recent to the extent. I think I need to let, be open and transparent. And so my advice is, yeah, definitely be transparent. Disclose involvements, particularly if if you think about them as, as you say, Philip, you, you have that gut instinct. If that gut instinct is telling you there's something, oh, I'm not quite sure here, reveal it. Once you've revealed it, disclosed it to either the appointing body or the parties, then you've done the right thing. And if they then are quite happy to appoint you, that's great. What you don't want is for that same thing to arise halfway through the arbitration. It's been playing on your mind. Somebody comes across it and reveals it, and then the whole thing causes a, a, a bedlam worth of, of problems. So, yeah, my one piece of advice is that if you're not sure, disclose it. And if it's a private appointment, disclose it to the parties, let them consider. If they're both happy with you, fine. If they're not, then play safe. If you're being appointed by RSCS, disclose. Philip, it's been a joy talking to you as always. Thank you. I'm going to wrap up now. I think it, this uh, has been a very useful conversation. I make the point again to people listening that the RSS guidance notes is available to all RSS members from the website. If you are involved in dispute resolution, not just as a dispute resolver, but also as party representatives in, in dispute resolution, do download it, do read it, do have cognizance of it whenever you're involved in, in dispute resolution. And on that, uh, Philip, thanks again. Thank you very much. And uh, speak soon. Goodbye.